You're listening to a message from Christ's Covenant Church, where we are growing together in Christ as a caring community of disciple-makers. Thank you for listening, and please feel free to share this with others who may find it helpful. You know, though many people in our society are not that familiar with the contents of the Bible, there are almost surely several events in the life of Christ that most people in our society would be at least somewhat familiar with. If nothing else, from the national holidays that we celebrate that center around Christ and his life. Um, if you were to guess, I mean, just think of people maybe you work with in your neighborhood, family members that maybe don't even know Jesus Christ, and not that familiar with the Bible, they at least know some. They at least know several incidents from the life of Christ. Do you, do you want to guess any of those? What would be some of the most well-known, some of the most famous incidents in the life of Christ? Just blurt one out if it comes to your mind. Christmas, the birth. Yes, every December 25th, we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ. And even though it's been highly commercialized, most people in our society would have at least heard some of the Christmas carols while they shop. So they, they realize the birth of Jesus is part of his story. What else comes to your mind? Yeah, I heard a couple there. Yeah, the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, our culture at least somewhat recognizes Good Friday, and people know that Jesus Christ died on the cross. They see crosses. They know Christians who talk about the death of Jesus and his resurrection. I heard some of you mention that, that uh, we celebrate Easter, we celebrate resurrection, that Jesus came back from the dead. So even people in our culture, even though they don't know a lot about the Bible, they probably know at least somewhat familiar with several well-known incidents from the life of Christ, his birth, his death, his resurrection. Now, my next question I realize is rather subjective, but if you were to put a fourth one on that list, if you were to put a fourth incident in the life of Christ on that list that people in our culture probably at least heard of, they're at least somewhat familiar with, anybody want to take a stab at that one? Pouring, that was one, yeah, turning the one, pardon me, walking on the water, cleansing the temple, yeah, healing the blind man. The triumphal entry, thank you. <laughs> and I was not holding up a cue card. <laughs> yeah, I would guess. Now, these other ones are all good as well. And as I said, it's very subjective. And maybe I should say, what are the top ten or something? But I wouldn't be surprised if the triumphal entry is on the short list. It might even be number four. Because in our culture, a lot of people know of Palm Sunday. They know of Palm Sunday. They, they see signs. They hear Christians talking about it. Maybe someone took them to church on Palm Sunday. There's a lot of people in our culture, even though they might not be followers of Jesus, even though they might not know a lot of the contents of the Bible, have heard of Palm Sunday. They've heard of what we know as the triumphal entry. Join me, if you will, right now in the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and we're going to look at verses 12 through 19 today. Interestingly, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem is one of the few incidents in his life and ministry that's mentioned in all four Gospels. If you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and look at the similarities, Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a lot in common. John has kind of stands alone, but uh, there are uh, several, not a whole lot of incidents in the life of Christ mentioned in all four Gospels, but this is one of them, the triumphal entry. 
And it is probably, in my postulation, one of the most well-known and one of the most celebrated events in the life of Jesus. Um, Every year around the world, Christian churches on the week before Easter, the week before Resurrection Sunday, will celebrate and sometimes even reenact, in a small measure, the triumphal entry of Jesus. But I'm going to I'm going to say today, I think even though the triumphal entry of Jesus is one of the most well-known incidents in his ministry, my guess is it's probably one of the most misunderstood. I think the triumphal entry of Jesus is one of the most misunderstood events in his life. Don't answer this one out loud, but think about it. If someone were to ask you, maybe a child, maybe somebody who's not a follower of Christ at your workplace, at your school... If someone were to ask you, what's the big deal about Palm Sunday anyway? Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? Why do we celebrate Palm Sunday? What would you say? Let's see what we can learn today. And more than just learn, more than just our heads... How might our lives be impacted? How might our lives be transformed by the Holy Spirit from this portion of Scripture? I'm open to John 12. Are you? I'm going to read now verses 12 through 19 aloud. You follow along in your Bible as I read aloud. John 12, verse 12, the Word of God says, The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that we're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So as we read this short account, Some of the other Gospels, particularly Luke, have longer versions of the same incident in the life and ministry of Jesus. But as we read John's shorter account, what do we see? Well, many of you were here last Sunday, not all of you, but those of you who were here last Sunday, remember what we saw. It was Saturday evening, and Jesus was at the home of a man that we know in the Bible simply as Simon the leper. It was in Bethany, which was also the village where some of Jesus' closest friends lived. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, two sisters and a brother. And it was at this home of Simon the leper on a Saturday evening that Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, anointed Jesus' feet with that phenomenally expensive ointment made of pure nard. And even though she received criticism from Judas and some of the other disciples that that was a waste, Jesus said, no, that wasn't a waste. Remember last week as we looked at that passage in John 12? What is Jesus worth to us? 
It's the next morning now. It is the very next morning. It is Sunday morning of Passover week. And a large crowd of people saw Jesus was about to descend the hill that we know as the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem. Now because this is Passover week, and many people came to Jerusalem early because they needed to go through certain purification rites so they'd be qualified to celebrate Passover. There were lots and lots of people around Jerusalem at this season. In fact, many of these people would have been up from Jesus' home area in Galilee up north. And they would have made the three or four day journey by foot from the north, from Galilee, following the Jordan River, and then up the hill from Jericho up to Jerusalem. And so as Jesus even was beginning his descent from Bethany, a lot of pilgrims, a lot of travelers coming to the Passover would have been coming from that same direction. And as Jesus heads down that hill toward Jerusalem, two miles distant, the crowds grow. And in fact, even as this large group of people that descended the hill with Jesus we're coming down the hill. There was another large crowd coming out of the city. The news was traveling quickly. He's coming. He's coming to the Passover after all. Jesus, that guy that raised Lazarus from the dead, he's coming. And so one large crowd coming from the east meets up with this other large crowd coming out of Jerusalem. And the crowd is just huge. Let me just pause and make a point that I think is often missed in this story. It is this. Jesus took the initiative. Jesus took the initiative in the timing of this story. Now, if you study the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll notice that there was this growing antipathy, this growing hatred of Jesus on behalf of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, the, the council of elders made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. And they had this growing hatred of Jesus. And they wanted to arrest him. Some of them were already planning on killing him. But they did not, they did not want to arrest him during the Passover. Because Jesus was very popular. At this season, Jesus was very popular. A lot of people wanted him because he's a miracle worker. Look at all these astonishing things he's doing. And the religious leaders had this fear that if we try to arrest him during the Passover, we could have a riot on our hands. And if we have a riot on our hands, who knows what the Romans will do. The Romans might come and just, just try to squash this, this excitement, this rebellion that comes if we arrest him. And we'll lose our positions. We'll lose our positions of power here in Jerusalem. We could even lose our nation. So the religious leaders definitely wanted to arrest Jesus, and some of them were already contemplating killing him, but they didn't want to do it now. They didn't want to do it at the Passover. And yet Jesus, and yet Jesus says, no, it's going to be now. Jesus takes matters into his own hands. I was reading something by an author I enjoy, a man from the previous generation named William Hendrickson, and he wrote this. He said, Jesus takes matters into his own hands. He is forcing the issue. He deliberately plans a demonstration, fully realizing that as a result, the enthusiasm of the masses will enrage the hostile leaders. 
at Jerusalem to such a degree that they will desire more intensely than ever to carry out their plot against him. Jesus forces the members of the Sanhedrin to change their timetable with respect to his execution so that, will, so that it will harmonize with his and with the Father's timetable. I think this is fascinating. Now, some of you were with us last spring when we studied that part of John, the Gospel of John, where it describes Jesus feeding the 5,000. Even if you weren't with us in the spring when we studied that, you, maybe you've heard that story, how Jesus took five little barley loaves and two fish that a little boy had donated, and, and from that, Jesus did the miracle of feeding 5,000 men. That's not even counting the women and children. Some people think it might have been 20,000. So if you think of everybody that lives in Warsaw and Winona together, Jesus fed Winona and Warsaw together, everybody, men, women, boys, girls, with five little barley loaves and two fish. And it was such an astonishing miracle that it says in the Bible that the people up there in Galilee, when Jesus did that, they wanted to grab Jesus and make him their king. He wanted to make him their king because they were so impressed with this miracle that he just did. That was really cool, Jesus. You know, if we make you our king, you could do that again and again and again. You could just keep feeding us. And it says in that passage that Jesus, knowing their hearts, Jesus knowing that they wanted to make him their king, it says he withdrew by himself up in the mountain. He got out of there. Jesus said, in essence, by his actions, no. You are not going to draft me to be your king at this time. That's John 5. If you read John 7, it says in John 7 that some of Jesus' half-brothers, physical brothers, half-brothers, were trying to force Jesus to go up to Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacle. And he said to his brothers, this is not my time or we would say, my time has not yet come. And so Jesus has responded to his brothers with a statement with, this isn't the right time. This not, my time has not yet come. But it's almost as if Jesus is getting up on that little donkey colt, up on the top of the Mount of Olives, looking down the hill toward Jerusalem. And it's almost as if he's saying by his action, it's time. It's time. Jesus is initiating the timing of this. Regardless of the wishes of Jesus' enemies, Jesus would die at the precise time foreordained in God's sovereign plan. That's part of the story that can be easily missed. Jesus would die precisely at the time foreordained by God himself. Just weeks later, Peter would stand in the temple courtyard and preach that this Jesus delivered up according to the, and I'm reading now from the Bible, Acts 2.23, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And so Peter is not absolving the 
culpability, the responsibility of the people that murdered Jesus. But he is saying, you realize that all happened precisely according to God's sovereign plan. In Acts chapter 4, you have recorded for you there the prayer of some of the early believers in Jerusalem after Peter and John were miraculously released from prison. And as they prayed, they prayed that, uh, praising God, that everything was worked out according to His sovereign plan in the death of Jesus. So even though Jesus had repeatedly, even though Jesus had repeatedly up to this point saying, it's not my time, my time has not yet come, sitting on that donkey on this particular Sunday morning, he's saying, it's time. Jesus initiated the timing of his triumphal entry. He not only initiated the timing, he initiated the kind of beast on which he would ride, the beast of burden. Did you notice that in John 12, 14? It says, Jesus found a donkey. Looks like a simple statement. Maybe doesn't grab us in 21st century America that Jesus found a donkey. But clearly Jesus is taking the initiative in what kind of animal he would ride into the city. Now, since the time of Solomon on, donkeys were considered by people beasts of peaceful and humble people. Um, if someone were coming in peace, he would be riding a donkey. Whereas the horse was seen as a beast to denote might and power and wealth, a warrior. So if a warrior was making his entrance, if a general was coming back from a battle, you know, entering the city, that's the kind of picture you would have here. If a general was coming back victorious from a battle, he'd be riding on a horse. He'd be riding on a horse coming down that road. But Jesus, John says, Jesus found a donkey. He could have found a horse, but he found a donkey. He chose to ride a donkey. A donkey, not a war horse. This was the fulfillment of an old prophecy. Back in Zechariah's day, God prophesied through Zechariah, and it's quoted, at least in part, in this passage, Zechariah 9.9 was being carried out at Jesus' initiative. There we read this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. That means like a citizen of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. That Sunday morning, as Jesus mounted that donkey colt, he was living out, God's prophecy through Zechariah. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was carrying out the sovereign plan of God that had been laid out in eternity past and prophesied through the prophets. I think Kent Hughes said it well. He said, the wheel of history did not crush him. Jesus was turning the wheel. I'm going to read that again. The wheel of history did not crush him. Jesus was turning the wheel. As Jesus descends the Mount of Olives toward Jerusalem, he's met with this huge crowd of people celebrating his arrival. 
Another prophecy from Zechariah. Zechariah 14 says that the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. Many people came out. You know, I've wrestled with how big was this crowd, and John doesn't give us numbers. But we do know from other histories, the history of Josephus, he was a Jewish historian that wrote a generation or so later. He said that at Passover, there would often be maybe a quarter million to a half a million people coming to Jerusalem for the Passover. And so if not only local citizens, but this huge mass of people there for the Passover were coming out to greet Jesus, don't picture three or four or five hundred people along that route coming down from the Mount of Olives. I would say don't even picture thousands. It could have been several hundred thousands. So if you're watching a football game on TV this afternoon and the camera pans that stadium, you're probably looking at 50 to 60,000 people. So picture four or five of those. Four or five of those. I mean, huge mass of people lining this two-mile route down the hill, through the valley, and up into the eastern gate going into Jerusalem. You know, if you're trying to picture that in your mind, something else to add to the picture is that because of the Passover, everyone had to sacrifice a lamb. Every family had to sacrifice a lamb. And so there would have been hundreds of thousands of sheep lambs pasturing on those hillsides around the city till it was time for them to die. So thousands upon thousands of people in the background, the bleeding of all these sheep scattering the hillside. And down the road comes Jesus on the colt of a donkey. And you kids that are remaining in the room know what the people were waving, don't you? They were waving adults. They were palm branches. Now, we celebrate that on Palm Sunday, but maybe it doesn't mean a whole lot to us. But to a Jew, it would mean a whole lot because the palm branch was a symbol of the Jews. It, it was a national symbol Ever since the time of the Maccabees, about 200 years before this, the palm branch was a, a nationalistic symbol. Now, maybe you've been to maybe a Fourth of July parade, for instance, or a Memorial Day parade, and, and you go to one of these Fourth uh, of July parades. What, what are people waving along the route? What are they waving? American flags. They're waving American flags because this is a celebration of America. You know, we're, we're celebrating America. And so we wave our national flags. Well, the people waving palm branches were making a statement. They were waving symbols of their nation. They were waving symbols of the Israelites. That's what we see. What do we hear? Let's go back to the text. What do we hear coming from the crowd? What are they cheering? Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes. Blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Hosanna means salvation now. It might have been a prayer. It might have been a celebration. Like, now salvation has come. This is actually taken from the Psalms. One of the Hallel Psalms. One of the praise Psalms. Psalms 118, verse 26. And it is, Psalm 118, this portion of Psalm 118, is clearly seen as messianic, having to do with the Messiah. When it says the one coming or the coming one, that was their way to describe the Messiah. The one anointed by God is coming. Remember when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, are you the one to come? 
are you the one to come? That phraseology from a Jew meant, are you the Messiah? And so when these people said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're making a statement of, this is the Messiah. And then they add this phrase, interestingly. Do you see it there in your Bible? Even the king of Israel. It seems pretty clear that this huge crowd of people shouting their praises sees Jesus as their Savior, the Messiah. But as they wave their palm branches, we realize, at least for a lot of them, maybe most of them, maybe nearly all of them, they're making a political statement. They're making a political statement. They're saying, finally, finally, we have someone who works miracles. I mean, he raised that Lazarus guy from the dead. In fact, isn't that him over there? <laughs> well, if he could do that, couldn't he do the miracle of ridding us of these Gentile occupiers? Couldn't he get rid of these Gentile occupiers, the Romans? Couldn't he restore our nation to its former glory? Couldn't he take us back to King David's day? As they wave their flags, they wave their palm branches. The word had spread, verse 17 and 18 tells us, because of Lazarus. These people knew that there was a man coming down that road on a donkey who could do things that no one else had ever done before. And they thought, this is the guy. This is the one coming. This is the Messiah. Come and save us from our problems. Can you see it? Can you hear it? Never before had Jesus ever submitted to anything like this, the triumphal entry. Why would he do that? Why would Jesus orchestrate this coronation parade, especially when on every other previous occasion he withdrew from the crowds? He tried to move himself out of the royal spotlight. What's so significant here? Well, the fact that Jesus goes through with the triumphal entry is he is making a statement about his messiahship. What's messiah mean, by the way? You familiar with that? Messiah? Uh, the Greek word would be Christ, Christos. So Messiah is a Hebrew word. Christ is a Greek word. But they mean exactly the same thing. Both of those words mean anointed. If someone were a prince being anointed, he would be in line to be king. Uh, he would have oil put on his forehead. He would, they would, or poured on his head even. It was a symbol that you're the next king. You're anointed. That's what it means. So Jesus is being anointed, as it were, as a king. But Jesus is declaring, yes, he's declaring his messiahship, but he's making a statement what kind of messiah he is. Jesus, riding that donkey, is saying by his actions, I'm not a political liberator, I'm not a military conqueror, I am a self-sacrificing, humble rescuer of sinners. Now, most of the Jews in Jesus' day were looking for a military Messiah, someone who would crush the Gentile occupiers. But Jesus is not going along with that. There have been skeptics over the centuries who read this account in any of the four Gospels and think that Jesus was somehow a deluded visionary. That Jesus was a deluded visionary, man. He, he's coming down that hill and he's drinking this in. This is great. This is great. Look at this. I was hoping for this. I was hoping the people would receive me as a Messiah. Now they are. This is great. This is working out perfectly. 
only by Friday to have a lot of the same people cry out, crucify him, crucify him. And Jesus' hopes were dashed. His hopes on Sunday were dashed by Friday. My friends, Jesus was not deluded. He knew full well what was going to happen that week. He'd been telling his followers clearly what was going to happen that week. As Jesus rode that young donkey down that hill, he knew what lay ahead. Not a coronation, but a crucifixion. As he rode not a war horse, but a donkey, he was indicating, I know what kind of Messiah I am. His crown would not be made of gold, but of thorns. His robe and his scepter would be splattered with blood, his own blood, given in mockery by the Roman soldiers who were beating him. His throne would not be a chair plated in gold, but a rough wooden cross. As he had previously announced, Jesus the Messiah came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The great majority of people in that mob didn't get it. They did not understand what kind of Messiah Jesus was. As I've meditated on this passage for the last week or two, what I've been impressed with is this. That the people in that huge crowd saw their main problem as being outside of themselves. They saw their main problem as being outside of themselves. My problem, our problems are external to us. Our problems are those Romans. That's the problem. The fact that they're here and the way they're taxing us, the way they're abusing us, the way they're keeping us from our God-given glory. They're the problem. We need a Messiah. We need a Savior. We need someone who can come and deal with our problem. Our problem is out there. Our problem is outside of us. Our problem are those Romans. Give us a Savior who can get rid of the Romans. Give us a Savior who can fix our problems out there. They wanted a national liberator. And they thought they could tap into Jesus for their cause a miracle worker who could solve those problems out there that were suffering from them. They assumed that Jesus would serve their cause. And you know what, John? I appreciate his humility as he wrote his gospel. He tells us in verse 16, he didn't get it either. He and the fellow disciples didn't get it either. They failed to understand the significance of the triumphal entry until later. After Jesus rose from the dead, died, rose again, and was glorified into heaven, then the Holy Spirit opened their eyes to the point that they got it. So it wasn't just the masses. It was even some of the people walking beside that donkey down the hill. As we go back to this royal procession, listening to the excited shouting, watching the people putting their cloaks on the road in front of the donkey, waving their palm branches, everyone looks so happy, don't they? There's rich people, poor people, young people, old people. They all look so happy as they shout their hosannas, waving their flags. But not everybody was happy. Look at verse 19. So the Pharisees said to one another, 
you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. These were the foes of Jesus, these key leaders. Oh, they surely had political concerns. They didn't want their precarious position as underlings and yet leaders among the Jewish people, Roman underlings, Jewish leaders, they didn't want to lose those positions that they were hanging on to by the fingernails. There was that, but I'm sure there was also personal jealousy. I mean, this Galilean, this guy from the backwoods, the hills up there in, in Galilee, he's getting all this attention and we're not. But more than that, there was just unbelief. Even though it was undeniable that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, even that would not convince them to repent of their unbelief and turn to Jesus. My mind goes to how Isaiah the prophet begins his book of prophecies 700 years before this. He said, the ox knows his master, the donkey his own manger. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. And so here are these religious leaders who knew so much about the Bible refused to bend the knee to Jesus. You know, one thing we want to benefit from Luke's Gospel here is how did Jesus respond to the triumphal entry? Have you ever looked at Artist renditions of the triumphal entry. I actually did that this week. I did a Google search on triumph. I put images, you can try this, images for the triumphal entry. And over the centuries, there have been a lot of artists who try to depict the triumphal entry. And do you know how almost all of them depict Jesus? He's smiling. He's just drinking this in. This is so nice. All these people are honoring me today. And, and you know, Jesus riding that donkey, smiling and doing his parade wave, you know. Just drinking it all in. This is great. All these people crying out my Hosanna. Luke tells us in Luke 19, 41 and 42. Let, listen as I read this to you. It says, and when he, Jesus, drew near this and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known from this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. And as John writes that in the Greek language, he uses a word that means loud sobbing. It wasn't Jesus just had a tear running down his cheek, wetting his beard a little bit. John says he was sobbing loudly. Jesus was sobbing. He's riding that donkey. And he's, he's weeping. People around him could hear him crying. And you say, why? This looks so festive. This looks so celebratory. This is a happy occasion. And yet the one who's being honored, or so, so to speak honored, is sobbing. He's sobbing as he rides that donkey through the eastern gate. Jesus is heartbroken. Jesus is heartbroken over the triumphal entry. Because even though he's announcing his messiahship, the huge percentage of people in that mass Jesus knew that. He knew that their biggest problem was not outside of them. Their biggest problem was inside of them. Jesus knew the people in this crowd need a Savior from their sin. 
that they're alienated from the God who made them, the God who owns them. They're alienated from God because of their sin, but they don't see that. They see themselves as pretty good people. They see themselves as good religious people. And if they got a problem, the problem isn't in here. The problem's out there. My problem is those Romans. My problems are those people. Get those people out of my life, and I'll be fine. I'll be happy. And when Jesus hears that and sees that and knows their hearts, he sobs. He sobs. He weeps over Jerusalem during his triumphal Jesus was not smiling during the parade that evening. How should we be impacted by this story? How, how should we be changed by this? How many times have we celebrated Palm Sunday, maybe even reenacted it, without ever stopping to ask, are we reenacting the act that was largely misunderstood? I'm not saying don't celebrate Palm Sunday, but celebrate it for a very different reason than that first time. It's sobering to remember. It's sobering to remember that many of the people who cried out Hosanna on Sunday cried out crucify him on Friday. I'm sure it was some of the same voices. How does that happen? How does that happen? You know, I think they saw Jesus wrongly because they saw themselves wrongly. They evaluated their own lives. And as they evaluated their own lives, they apparently saw that their main problems were external. I got this issue. I got that issue. I got this problem in my life. And what I need is someone to come and fix my problems. I need someone to come and deal with my problems so I can have a more fulfilled life, a happier life. Missing the point that their greatest problem was their sin. It was internal. You know, and as I've been meditating on the triumphal entry, I keep thinking, what, how do I see myself? How do I see myself? And I, I don't want you to answer this out loud, but if I were to ask you personally right now, what, what you, what, what's the biggest thing you're facing right now? What's, what's the biggest thing you're facing right now? What, what's your biggest problem? I mean, how many of us, how many of us would automatically think of something external? Well, I'm going through this medical issue right now, or my family member has this physical problem right now, and we're really praying about that. It's a big, that's the biggest thing in our heart right now is this medical thing we're going through. Or, or maybe you're thinking, I have these financial problems. I don't know how I'm going to pay my school bill. I don't know how I'm going to get all my bills paid. You know, I've got this financial issue. That's my biggest problem. Or maybe there's someone in your life you're just not getting along with. Someone in your family, a close friend, your roommate. And you say, that's my biggest problem. I need to figure out some way to get along with this person that's making my life so difficult. Or, or maybe you're standing back and you're looking at the political mess we're in right now. And you're saying, man, we need someone to come and fix our political mess. We need someone to come and fix these societal problems that we're facing. That's the biggest issue. Well, friends, I think what I'm seeing in the triumphal entry is if like they, we see ourselves that way. If we see well, our biggest problems are out there, I'm okay, but I've got these problems, then we'll look for a Savior who we think will fix those external problems. We'll try to find someone that will fit that. 
those external problems. And as long as Jesus comes through for us, as long as we find a good report from the doctor, or we find out someone surprised us and paid our school bill, or, or we get along with that person, or maybe moved away or something, you know, uh, you know, and these external problems, it's like, oh, Jesus, answer my prayers. I'm good with Jesus. Jesus is good with me. I like Jesus. He's solving my problems. We're, we're fine with Jesus. But, but what if? What if you don't get a good report from the doctor? Or what if the finances don't come through? Or what if that person that made you miserable makes you more miserable? And you feel like Jesus isn't coming through for me. Jesus isn't coming through for me. And we become disillusioned with Jesus. Somehow we're not as excited about Jesus as we used to be because he's not solving my problems. My, my problems are, are, are those. They're those things out there. But as we read the Bible about the triumphal entry, we realize my biggest problem isn't out there. The problems I face out there are symptoms. They're fruit, result of my inner problem and the inner problem we all have and that is our sin against God. That my biggest problem is that I'm a sinner against God and I need someone to come and fix the inside, not just the outside. And parents and grandparents, please, as I thought about this, I thought how many times as a grandparent is it so easy to say, I got, I got good grandkids, as long as we can keep them away from all those bad influences, they'll be just fine. I got good kids, if I can just keep them from all those bad influences, they'll be just fine. My friends, our kids and our grandkids, their problems aren't just out there. They're in here. Our kids and grandkids need a Savior. They need a Savior from their sins. Let's not be diluted. Let's, let's realize that the biggest problem our kids, our grandkids, we face is our sin against a holy God. And we need a Messiah. We need a Savior who comes comes and saves us from our sins. That's why Jesus came. That's why he came. That's why he said he came. If we listen to God's diagnosis of our biggest issue, we read things like this from Romans 3. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is our biggest problem. You know, just a week or so before the triumphal entry, Jesus was down the hill on the other side, down in Jericho. And he went, he went to the house of a chief tax collector. Can you believe it? Can you believe that Jesus, the rabbi, went to the home of a chief tax collector, a collaborator, a cheat? And yet as Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house, salvation, salvation came to Zacchaeus' house. And Jesus stood up in that astonishing setting of Zacchaeus' house and he said, the Son of Man came, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were lost. That should take our breath away. Then at Zacchaeus' house, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those that were lost. On the way up the hill from Jericho, he told his men, don't be like the Gentiles wanting to lord it over people. The Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul told the Corinthians that Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus died that Passover right on schedule to save his people from their sin. And so I ask you today, what is your biggest problem? What is your biggest problem? I'm not denying that we have problems in this world. Yeah, we got problems. But what's your biggest problem? What's your root problem? Is that you need to be right with God. And the Bible says, Jesus is going to say later this week in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Have you come to God through Jesus Christ? Many of you have. Praise God that he's your Messiah, your Savior from your sins. Some of you are here today and you're realizing I've never looked at myself as a sinner in need of a Savior. And today the Holy Spirit is peeling back the layers of your heart so that you see your greatest need is to be right with God, saved from your sins, forgiven through Jesus Christ. Will you come to him today?